My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at BroBible.com. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Onder, who you could find writing about video games over at ComicBook.com. We are also joined by our friend, Brandon Katz, not for this part, for the Game of Thrones part towards the end, so stick around for that. We also have my interviews with the Werewolf by Night team. I'm talking to director Michael Giacchino, actress Laura Donnelly, who plays Elsa Bloodstone, and Brian Gay, who's a director of production and design, I think, and Marvel, who worked on this, worked on Ant-Man and a whole bunch of stuff. Stick around for that. But before that, we are getting to what is easily the biggest news of the week, bigger than the new Andor, bigger than the new House of the Dragon, bigger than the new She-Hulk. The tweet announcing this news that we're going to talk about has over 1 million likes. Now, I looked online. Most lists only go up to the top 30, right? And half of them are BTS tweets. (laughs) I swear to God. And so the top 30 ends at around like 2.3-ish million likes. So I imagine that this is in the top 50. What tweet is this? It's a tweet from Ryan Reynolds sitting on a couch talking about Deadpool 3. But we did have one idea. Hey, Hugh, you want to play Wolverine one more time? Yeah, sure, Ryan. And And out of nowhere walks Hugh Jackman, who he asks if he wants to play Wolverine one final time, and Hugh Jackman says yes. Now, I actually this summer spoke to the writers of Deadpool 3, and I asked them who they think should be cast as Wolverine. And they both said somebody knew. Now, I, this was back in June, so I don't know if the deal had come together. Either way, if it had, they did a great job of lying. I think that fans in our heart of hearts might have always expected this, right? Because yeah. of A, the multiverse, and B, how much Hugh Jackman seems to enjoy it, and C, how much Hugh Jackman and Ryan Reynolds seem to get a kick out of each other. So I'm thrilled to hear it's going down. Cade, what were your first thoughts? I've always said that if they're going to bring him back, I want to see him in Deadpool. I I think because Deadpool doesn't fucking adhere to anything. Like (laughs) there are no rules. When you watch a Deadpool movie, you're like, this is a parody of everything. And like it, it exists within Marvel, but it is making fun of Marvel and stuff. And you can do it without being like, oh no, they're breaking the continuity. It's like, Yes, I'm a big believer that when you kill a character, you, they should stay dead. But this is a, an exception because it's not like it's not like he's coming back for Logan too, right? This is not a serious movie, and so I'm I'm okay with it. And um, they've kind of already addressed that this isn't going to like dig him up. You know, they'll probably poke fun at it in some way. But, but... I'm curious, though, because while I agree, like, would poking fun at Logan undermine it a bit? I mean, they they opened Deadpool 2 by being like, oh, Logan fucking killed himself. So now I have to, too, or whatever. Right. Like, whatever the joke yeah, was. True, and the true. little statue of him. On the... True. I guess you're right. Yeah, you're right. So they, they've already kind of gotten those jokes out of the way. I, I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure they will make some joke about it, at least one. Um, but uh, my idea for years has been, if they're going to do it, you should have Hugh Jackman come in 
as Wolverine, but he's like still the actor who thinks he's still Wolverine. And so he's like, I got to get back in the game. And Dip was like, dude, you're not actually a superhero. You're right. just Incredibly huge. Meta. Yeah, I could see that. And they bring him on adventures and he tries to pull out claws and he just can't do it. Well, so a few years ago, the reports were that they legitimately, I mean, reports. In fact, this was straight from Ryan Reynolds mouth himself. And people didn't believe him at the time. I did because he attached it. It was for like, it was World Smile Day or some shit like that. And it was like yeah. an anti-bullying campaign. So to promote that, he told this story. So I took him at his word. He jokes, yes. but he wouldn't joke about something like this. And he said that the plan was going to be a road trip, Rashomon style, which means changing perspectives of different characters telling their own point of view from the same events. And then th- therefore their version of events vary you got to imagine that there's no reason why they wouldn't kick that old idea back up absolutely it it seems like look i'm sure they can pay hugh jackman whatever he wants he doesn't seem like the kind of sellout type he's 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 just he likes these kinds of things i think like i don't know if you saw it, there was a video of some paparazzi guy the I other did. day yeah like being like wolverine and he's like yeah and he did the cause he seems he genuinely seems stoked really, yeah yeah really happy about it so um I, I, I'm excited to see what they do. I, I wonder how long he has to be a secondary character. I mean, they put his clothes. No, no, he's going to be the the co-lead. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be like a buddy cop film. I mean, it's going to be co-leads. And do you you think people are already speculating? Do you think this means he will come in for secret wars? Well, so in the video, Ryan Reynolds asks him, quote, one more time. Right. So um, dude, am I saying that that word is law? No, of course yeah. not. But like, <laughs> like you just said, it's not like he's a sellout, right? It's not like he's doing this for a paycheck. So like, do I see him flying to fucking Atlanta to take part in a 50 cast member film that's going to take half a year to shoot about warring multiverse <laughs> worlds. I don't know. But what I do know is that him and Ryan are genuinely friends. Yes. He genuinely loves playing Wolverine. Before Fox got sold, wheels were turning to make this a real thing. So part of me thinks that it's just right place, right time and not necessarily up because for all we know, this might be the last Deadpool film. They've given us no indication that they play. I mean, my tweet was Ryan Reynolds might be the most powerful man in Hollywood. I agree with that. Uh, Because this guy, uh, to not only get Marvel to keep Deadpool around, to get an R-rated greenlit, and to circle the wagons of multiversal storytelling, Hughes' schedule and contract, and all that stuff, stuff, like, to get him back into the fold. That's what fascinates me too. Whose quote unquote idea was this? Did Sean Levy and Ryan Reynolds go to Feige and be like, yo, or did Kevin Feige go to them and be like, yo, you know, like I'm so (laughs) curious as to which. And I think that's a huge important part in all this because that'll tell us how genuine the intentions are. So this is a long way of saying, do I think that this is going to be a continued role for him? I don't, because I think realistically, the X-Men are coming to the MCU at some point. Wolverine is going to remain one of the tenets of them. And Hugh Jackman is in his, what, mid to late 50s? So it's just not sustainable for him long term. But I think if it's like a one last go around for shits and gigs, you know, if there's anything that we've gotten to know about Hugh over the last 25 years... He's like a jovial song and dance man. He likes doing things for the sake of performance. He likes playing 
Wolverine. And I think that maybe getting to make like, so what do you, what would you say the last good X-Men film Hugh Jackman starred in not counting Logan? I mean, probably days of future past. Right. Right. Okay. So that's and what? 24, 2014. Yeah. So it had been a while since he had that sort of experience. Maybe he wants that again. Maybe he wants the paycheck. I could see him in this. I could see it in him in secret wars. I'd put it at a coin flip right now, but beyond that, I am still adamant that Wolverine is going to be replayed by somebody else in the MCU yeah. long term. Absolutely. I sent you a tweet on the, the Twitter of in 2015, Hugh Jackman tweeted, my last time putting on the claws and then has a, a picture of him sticking up his claw as like a middle finger it says hashtag one last time so they've done this whole thing before of the one last time kind of thing so i mean like like you said nothing is law but uh i i wouldn't be surprised if he shows up in secret wars i don't think i think that would be the definitive end at that point i i don't think they're going he's not going to be the mcu wolverine i think yeah you know because like Tobey Maguire is not the MCU Spider-Man. So you know, I had seen tweets out there, and this could be one of those fake tweets that just gained traction, but that like Kevin Feige has always wanted to see Toby's Spider-Man team up with Jackman's Logan. Now, Feige did work on both those OG films, yeah, yeah. right? So that is within the realm of possibility that him being like a giant kid, now that he rules the fucking world. <laughs> every, everything is his toy. Everything is his plaything. I could totally see him being on board with that. But if I had to bet, right, like if I was going to bet the over under of one and a half, I'd take the under. It's it's I'm not committed to anything like uh, I I really I don't know. Um, I know Wolverine showed up in a like uh, deleted scene in Fantastic Four, but it wasn't Wolverine. It was. Uh, Reed Richards doing some shit with his face and then it turns into Hugh Jackman's face which is bizarre and then I believe there was an idea that Wolverine was supposed to show up in one of the Spider-Man movies as a quick cameo but they like lost the costume or something I wrote about that before yep. yeah yeah and it's a real so, thing <laughs> it just never happened and, and so there were all these weird things I think I don't know if it's ever been disproven but during Spider-Man 2 when Mary Jane is running to Peter's apartment and her wedding dress apparently you can see thomas jane as punisher in the background like really? watching her like and it, it, you I, i've looked at it i'm like that does look a lot like him and i like, have never heard of or seen that wow bizarre i i don't know if anyone's ever disproven if that's just some guy that really looks like him or what but they were they were playing with these ideas right. long before the mcu actually came about so what like like you said this could be one big dream come true for Kevin Feige where now he has everything and yep. can do whatever he wants, but you know, who knows? All right. So let's go to the reverse side of Kevin Feige doing whatever he wants. <laughs> Look, man, this is, you know, this is, this is straight up. Like I, I said that as a joke, but I'm not kidding here. You no, know, this is, yeah. this is a bad look. All right. So on Tuesday night, it was reported that Blade director Bassem Tariq was going to exit the project. And in the official statement to THR, Marvel said it was due to scheduling, changing schedules, which is like the thinnest excuse I've ever heard in my life, considering they were supposed to start filming basically in four weeks, four or five weeks. A subsequent report from Jeff Snyder of The Ankler said 
that Mahershala Ali, who has been attached to this role for at least three years now at this point, is, quote, very frustrated with the process so far. Sources say that the script for Blade is just 90 pages long. Uh, The average screenplay is about 128. So that makes it over a quarter, over 25% too short. And in that script, it only features two, quote, two lackluster action scenes. And then the final tidbit of this report was that Kevin Feige is reportedly spread too thin. General rule of thumb is that every uh, page is a minute for the movie. So 90 minutes mean this movie would be about an hour and a half. And that's not always like concrete because action scenes sometimes, you know, do not dictate uh, actual minutes in terms of screen time because, you know, actions are longer than words. But um, it's all very interesting. And I, I will be curious to see if if any more reports come out about this, because Jeff Snyder has kind of a wishwashy reputation with his, mm, his okay. reports. So that's something to keep in mind. But either way, losing. It's a sound, I mean, it, it sounds it true. Doesn't, it doesn't sound off base, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I do put some weight on that. Um, Especially but, since they lost the director basically a month before they yeah. were supposed to start shooting. That's, exactly. That's not a good sign. If you have scheduling conflicts, that's shit you've worked out months in advance. Like, this is a movie that he's been attached to for at least a year, I think, or close to it. And then Mahershala I think like Ali, this calendar year, yeah. not perhaps 12 months. Yeah. yeah. And Mahershala Ali's been on this since 2019. What are we doing here? You know, yeah. <laughs> like, how do you get that close, announce that they're filming this fall, and then you get right to the moment where, you know, they're probably building sets right now. Like, they are preparing to go film somewhere, and they don't have a script that they can all agree on yet. And What's concerning to me is, and this speaks to the larger MCU problem, Kevin Feige can't come in and be like, okay, let's all come together. Let's figure out what we all want and see how we can maybe mix and match those things. Or or if you're not right, then we do get someone else. And that speaks to a larger problem that there's so much going on that the man in charge does not have oversight of one of the most anticipated Marvel movies, one of the riskiest Marvel movies, given it's a vampire movie, a horror movie. That's scary. I want I want that to be good and not a miss because, you know, Doctor Strange was a horror movie and a lot of people were like, I don't know how to feel about this. Mm-hmm. I want them to get this one right because it, it should be a slam dunk. Agree with everything you said. I think it does speak to the larger quantity over quality motto that they've took on the last few years. Something that I've always said about this is nobody's asking for all this content. No. Except the shareholders. (laughs) That's it. And that is why it's so goddamn annoying because you know that this is all a streaming era related quota that more is more. But that is not true. More is not more. And I think that we're seeing that now with, you know, if you look at their last... You know, it's only been a little bit more than a year since Black Widow came out, right? So right. you've got Black Widow, Shang-Chi, Eternals, No Way Home, Doctor Strange 2, and Thor 4 over the course of... Well, Thor 4 came out in July. So 12 months, six films in 12 months. Granted, some of those, some of that congestion was related to COVID. But as far as we know, I think next year, Marvel has 11 projects set to come out. So I can't really give them the benefit of the COVID doubt at that point. You look at those six projects, you could argue Black Widow, Eternals, and Thor 4 are are three of the most outright 
purely disliked MCU <laughs> films so far. You add on top of the fact that Doctor Strange 2, with you, which you and I and a decent amount of people still enjoyed, there was a vocal, I don't know, third of fans, yeah. perhaps, that were unsure of what to make of it. So when you and I remember thinking before this run started, I'm thinking like, fuck, Thor 3 was great. They've got yeah. Chloe Zhao to do <laughs> Eternals. They've got No Way Home, like Doctor Strange 2, Sam Raimi. Like in theory, I was thinking they could be on they could be setting themselves up for one of their best runs of all time. And it's wound up being the opposite of that. And if Wakanda forever which is going to clock in at 2.41, two hours and 41 minutes, which will be their second longest film of all time behind Endgame. Now, I've said on this show, I now consider myself a moron for having ever doubted Coogler <laughs> and seen how incredible the first trailer was. And I expect this to, in all honesty, be one of the most emotionally flooring comic book films ever made. But man, if they miss on this one too, there is no more excuses time. There is yeah. no more, oh, well, COVID, uh, you know, uh, CGI, but, but full-blown panic mode, full-blown faith lost if they don't pull this one off. Because that will be enough of a body of work to judge them on yeah seven films and five shows over the course of 16 <laughs> months that's a lot of fucking content and if, yeah. and if the average of all that is a b minus guess what that's what you are these days and now you're seeing that sort of proliferation of resources but not just physical writers and cgi artists but like mental and emotional work that goes into putting your passion and your heart in these projects, Kevin Feige simple. And it's, I'm not necessarily blaming him because I can almost guarantee you if he had his way, they would not be putting out this much shit. But the fact is he only has so much of himself to give. And if he's considered the mastermind and, and the steward and the guy who made this franchise to literally the most successful of all time. And quick side note, I started the MCU with my girlfriend and we're in phase one and you can see them kind of figure it out. But when you get to phase three, they're like banger, 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 yeah. banger. And you're like, wow, they are firing at all cylinders here because it was a reserved calculated approach. And now it's just felt so throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. And even if it doesn't stick, guess what? These fucking morons are still going to watch it regardless. Yep. Now we're seeing the tangible impact of that. You've got directors fleeing last minute. You've got Academy Award winning stars saying, what the fuck is going on? You've got leaks from yeah. inside your own house, which is a very <laughs> unmarvel like thing. Telling people he's spread too thin. Why is that being? I mean, have we ever heard that about Foggy before ever? The fact that that leaked out suggests that either someone's got it out for him or somebody's trying to put it out to, into the world to let the powers that be know we've got to reel it back in here. Yeah. Um, somewhat tangentially related. I think it speaks to a larger problem. I just uh, was looking for this tweet uh, from Unusual Whales was just it's like a stock trading uh, tracker thing. And it provides all kinds of tidbits on, on stocks. And one in four Netflix users say they're planning to ditch the app this year as the cost of living crisis bites per reviews.org. And I, I think that speaks to one, it's, it's both expensive. And two, I'm sure a lot of that also has to deal with there's so much and like not enough of it is quality for, especially for Netflix. It's a big problem they have. And that's only going to catch up to Disney plus. I know that they are kind of approaching that top dog. Like they're overtaking Netflix at, at some level, but 
there is so much to watch. And I, I tweeted out oh, earlier this week. I'm like, we need to take a pause. Everyone needs to stop releasing shit for like three fucking months. Cause I am, I am exhausted. I, I am seriously so tired <laughs> and like Andor, She-Hulk, Miss Marvel, uh, fucking Star Wars, Lego cartoons. Like just like, there's so much shit. And I just, I just needed to stop because we don't need all of it. And it's, it's hurting the quality, like you said, because there is no way to release that much content. And when we're hearing stuff like this and be able to make sure all of it is at the standard you expect. It's at some point, it's just there to serve as filler for the next big thing or um, just waste your time and keep you hooked on the the dopamine fucking, yep. you know, who's going to show up in this episode. Right. And and it's, it's exhausting. And yep. I think we need to pump the fucking brakes, Kevin. <laughs> now on the on the other side of the intellectual property spectrum comes for the first time in a while. Okay, it's game and corner. <laughs> Uh, first trailer for The Last of Us dropped this week, and it was such a breath of fresh air reminder that, like, HBO, even though they're starting to flirt with the IP world, they are still HBO, and they still do yes. prestige drama. And this trailer looked fucking beautiful in every way that I ever wanted it to, emotionally, cinematographically, tonally. It comes from... Chernobyl writer creator Craig Mazin. It's got Pedro Pascal, who's perhaps one of the most likable A-list stars we've got today. They are the fact that they had a hashtag art rolled out almost a year before the show even premieres suggests how much marketing they're going to be putting behind the show and how much faith they have in it in becoming one of their next great hits. This, I mean, we both played the games, but you are, in fact, a gaming writer. So I will let you have the floor for this one. Yeah, I will say that that hashtag was part of the last of us day, which is like a holiday they have. So, but, oh, but I, you I could still wouldn't tag the last yeah. of us as well. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if that is still, I mean, like this is going to be their biggest show of next year, probably. Uh, I have to imagine just because, like you said, Pedro Pascal, big name. You say the Mandalorian guy, you're going to be like, okay, in. Like <laughs> uh, zombie but, show, which zombie genre has scaled back in the last few years, but five, 10 years ago was fucking huge. Yeah. And this came out, this game came out at the peak of that in 2013. So uh, this is going to be huge. Um, and I think a lot of people are aware of The Last of Us, even if they haven't played it because they don't own a PlayStation, they don't play video games. And this is a perfect way to get those people in, right? So now you're going to tell this amazing story that people have raved about for years. You're going to make it accessible to them. You're going to keep the darkness. They have Neil Druckmann, who co-created the series and writes the games as a writer and an executive producer on this sh uh, show. They have some of the actors from the games playing different roles in the show. So they've given them new roles to do, which is cool. And so they are both retelling the story of at least the first game in the first season. And then they are adding new layers by, I won't spoil it because some of the stuff has leaked out, but there are characters that are going to play like a very big role that are not in the game, but they are like off screen mentioned. And so to, to see them, what does that add to the story? Does that add new context to the games? All that's very exciting. And, and um, the, the scale at which this game operates is, is huge and not just from set pieces, but emotionally, and, I mean, you've played the, the game. That first 20 minutes 
gut-wrenching. Well, so, right. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, you posted a screenshot of Ellie with mm-hmm. blood on her face. And a lot of people, that's a direct scene from the game. Right. I believe so. I, okay. it, it could be one of the new ones, but if I if I think it's what it is, then that's a pretty haunting moment. Towards the Spoiler end alert for The Last of Us 1, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, which came out in 2013. So if you don't want to hear it, skip ahead a minute. Sure. What what scene is that? Because I forget, but people were like, oh, no, not that scene. <laughs> I believe it's the scene with uh, David, who is... Uh, a cannibal who captures Ellie when Joel has been injured and uh, really, really bad stuff happens. Like it's, it's heavily implied. He was possibly going to rape her. Oh, whoa. If not just eat her. Oh and, man. I got to replay these fucking games. Um, and she has to kill him. And it's, it's like probably like her first real true kill. And, mm. and she's very traumatized and she's alone in this moment. And Joel manages to come in at the end as she's just wailing on this guy and she's just crying. And like, he comes in and he's like, it's okay. It's okay. And then they just have this big hug and it's like, it's, it's pretty haunting. So it'll be cool to have that blend of staying realistic to the games, but also yellow jacket star, Melanie Linsky has been cast in a new role. So obviously they're trying to expand the world as well, where this could be, you know, a five season long show while the last of us, the two games take place over a long period of time. The story is relatively finite, you know, like there's not, it's an expansive world, but it's not an expansive story. It's really just two people trying to get from point A to point B and dealing with shit along the way. TV shows can't really survive on that. So they're, they're, you know, they're going to have to have more than two characters. So that's kind of what we're seeing. I replied to the tweet from discussing film so this is basically the Walking Dead before it turned to a pile of shit. And I said that because, <laughs> because A, it's vaguely true, but B, I just like to be a dick about that show because I just find it hilarious how off the rails it went. But it's actually not true at all. I think this is going to be the perfect antidote to that show because whereas The Walking Dead is a extremely nihilistic brutalist doggy dog world take on uh, post-apocalyptic zombies. Not to say The Last of Us is all sunshine and daisies, but there's certainly more of a foundation of hope in that story. That's what the game's all about, really. Yes. So I find that it will just be less about like, whereas Walking Dead was like, their whole thing was, oh, you should really fear people. I don't think that that is the theme that this show is going to be going for. I no. think it's going to be, no, we need to gravitate towards each other and yeah. we need to survive through this together. And I think that that's going to be a stark contrast. I mean, look, there will still be war and factions. Yes. But that's a zombie uh, world trope. Of course, it's going to have that shit. But in general, I just think it's... Go- it's going to be depressing. There are going to be times you're scared and cry, yeah. but I just think as an overall motif, it's going to be a lot more hopeful. I think so as well. And and that's the whole thing of Ellie's character is she is someone who's grown up in this world because when the apocalypse happens, it is now 30 years like later when when it gets to the point of you, you start the game, right? So the apocalypse has happened. She's like 13 and uh, it, it's a big time jump. Like it is, it is huge. Okay, so she was not alive. No. Okay. So that the whole game is like viewing it through her perspective where Joel is like 
we deserve this kind of, you know, we fucked up. This is all on us. And, you know, we are showing that we are not worth anything. And then she's seeing things like drafts and these beautiful glimpses of life and what was before all of this. And she's like, oh, so you used to go to the movie theater, you know, just like these tiny things we take for granted. And obviously I'm not going to give away what happens with her, but she's a big key to, you know, saving humanity really. (laughs) Um, Right. And uh, so she, she is that beacon of hope and she is the one that maybe gives Joel like a thought that, Hmm, maybe there is something here. Maybe we do need to see the beauty in what we've got. Yeah. All right. Very nice. That's a great place to move on. Let's move on to some quick hitters and then we will take a quick break. Uh, Wakanda, uh, I already said that. Uh, Tena Huerta has firm that the MCU's version of Namor is a mutant, which would make him the second one in the MCU that we know of after Kamala Khan. Vince Gilligan's newest series, which will star Rhea Seahorn, has been given a two-season order at Apple TV+. That's fucking sick. Warner Bros. reportedly cooked its HBO subscriber numbers by as many as 10 million in addition to misleading shareholders in other ways. And now, as a result, a class action lawsuit is being filed against them. Wow. This company is like the George Costanza of (laughs) studios. I mean, they just... It's unreal. Uh, Jonathan Majors to star as Dennis Rodman in 48 Hours in Vegas. The new Planet awesome. of the Apes film is titled Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. It will take place, quote, many years after the previous trilogy. It'll hit theaters in 2024. And Freya Allen of The Witcher fame will star. Harrison Ford is rumored to be Marvel's top choice to play General Ross in Thunderbolts following the death of William Hurt. And that feels like a no-brainer. If they convince sure. him to do that, then by all means do it all right let's take a quick break and when we come back and or episode four all right and we are back and or episode four like i said i felt one through three were very much a prologue yeah now i feel like we're in the meat of the story as evidenced by we sort of meet the, the players on each side we meet sort of Andor's fellow rebel team we meet the imperial woman who is like the one who's suspect of all these random kind of rebelistic things that keep popping up she seems to be the only one to draw a line <laughs> her her boss is only like what are you talking about <laughs> uh, uh, and then other than that i guess we see the mechanics of what lucian actually does which i thought was wild he's an antiques dealer on coruscant which i thought was just seeing him get into character and put on the clothes and and flail his hands a bit, I thought that that was effective. But other than that, oh, and then of course we get the return of Senator Mon Mothma. She is Lucian's ally, but she's being watched by an Imperial driver and basically says that the walls are closing in. She wants to bring someone new into their crew, but we don't really know who. Kate, I don't really much have this much to say about this week's because I felt it was the worst of the four, not worst and just. I didn't enjoy it as much as the first three. Um, I felt it was more of a table setter and kind of putting the pieces in place from where they will go from here. We get to meet sort of who Andor is going to be tagging along with. We get to find out the plan. Their plan is to go undercover and rob uh, the quarterly payroll of an entire imperial sector. We get more of the sort of guerrilla warfare nature of their lives, how they're living in the woods and just the very sort of what we all loved about Rogue One and what we have loved about Andor so far that this more than any other product in the Star Wars world feels like a war. And that sucks. War is terrible. (laughs) War is hell. So 
Other than that, though, I don't think that there's really much to touch on here unless you've got something. The only thing I would really like to touch on is, is uh, like when you watch the original Star Wars trilogy, you don't really know the politics of the war. You just like not, these guys are Nazis. That's bad. We should we should probably blow up their shit. And that's all you really need. But um, as you go, go into the prequels, they dive into the semantics of everything that's going on and and uh, how the empire kind of comes to be and overthrowing democracy and all this very interesting stuff that um, isn't always executed in the most interesting way, but I think the ideas are, are very cool. And now you have someone who can kind of take the aftermath, the, the period that we never really saw, at least in the, the live action stuff of, all right, here's what all of that means to this world. And here's the position that has put these people in and getting down and dirty to really rebel against this and, and the effects this has. I mean, Mon Mothra is back and she is uh, being spied on and, and no one knows who to trust. No one knows how much of an iron uh, grip that the empire really has on them. And, and to have that kind of paranoia to it is very interesting. And I, and I think seeing the wheels turning into how that comes into uh, the rebels forming and really pushing back is very cool to me. And um, while this isn't the most um, action-packed or interesting episode, it's still cool to see like the plan being placed out and like figuring out why they need to do this, how they're going to do it. And so that's the the kind of stuff I really like. The way that I've come to see this show is like in the same way that the prequels are about how Anakin became Darth Vader. This is very much how the like a rebellion, like a guerrilla rebellion became the rebel alliance. It became like an actual functioning unit Yep. Uh, because right now it's all very rough and raw. All right. Let's swing over to my conversation with my buddy Brandon Katz about episode six of House of the Dragon. All right, and on to House of the Dragon, episode six, The Princess and the Queen. As always, Cade, since he has not caught up yet on House of the Dragon, he started House, but he hasn't caught up on House of the Dragon yet. Come on, Uh, Cade. Episode six, The Princess and the Queen, the much talked about 10-year time jump has occurred. I think that Emma D'Arcy and uh, Olivia Cook like quelled any concerns that people might have had that it would feel sort of weird or incongruent or a bit jagged immediately. I thought that obviously like the one take birth scene is a very, I know you're probably going to laugh at me for how I pronounce this. Bravura? Bravura? Yeah, yeah, bravura, sure. Okay, sure. Uh, Like that's a very sort of, you know, um, artsy sequence to introduce a new actress. They're right up close to her face. She's sweating, she's screaming. Then they do. Then they follow her through the hallways as she's dealing with politics and her husband and her own feelings. So then she hits a home run, right? And then Olivia Cook, I think, just brings this incredible, like, reserved acidity to her, like almost like a real housewives esque passive aggressive tone to her. Like when she tells Lenore, "Keep trying, and one day you'll get one that looks like you." Like that is cold blooded as shit. So I thought. Right off the bat, and I always knew that these two were going to be just fine. I put out a tweet. I've had Cook Stock since Me Earl and The Dying Girl. Have you seen that one, B? Yeah, I love that. But come on, Cook Stock since Bates Motel, dog, even earlier. Oh, wow. There you go. There you go. So point being is I knew that she'd be fine. And I just, 
you know, I was glad to see that I feel like Thrones more or less sort of like in sports, right? You run a play for the guy that you want to get hot when yeah. uh, the game starts. I feel like they very much did that for those two. I think it's a really, really good, like structural breakdown of not only ambition in terms of like technical uh, uh, aspects, but also in terms of like, okay, let's familiarize the audience immediately, get everybody comfortable. Let's get a little tense wow scene going on. So I, I think you nailed it, man. That that Those are some points tr- that I truly didn't even consider. But now when you, you think back on it, opening the episode with like, here is a one-two mono mono intense scene. Bang. Like, okay, everyone's on board. Let's move forward. And with the the way that she sort of, Allison requested to see Rhaenyra and then played dumb, like, oh, what are you doing here? Like, that's just, like, that's such a bitchy move. Like, that's the best way to put it, right? <laughs> so, but what I read online with an interview in Variety, Emily Carey, the actress who originally played Allison in the first five, says that... Allison's bitterness towards Rhaenyra is because, quote, she lied upon the memory of her mother for sleeping with Sir Kristen Cole, who Rhaenyra knew Allison was in love with. And I frankly didn't consider this and absolutely love that. I didn't pick up on it, really. I mean, you, we knew from the Torny scene in the first episode that they both were attracted to him and they kind of talked as, you know, 14, 15 year old girls will. That, that's fine to me as like an added incentive. But at the end of the day, I actually find what was more clear and obvious, far more compelling. And that is, uh, you know, yes, her, her friend lied to her and partially contributed to her, her father being dismissed. And essentially, she's become this isolated, alienated woman in this very dangerous uh, red keep situation. And she, she's projecting and rightfully blaming Rhaenyra for a lot of that. that. That's more compelling to me. But yeah, we can sprinkle in some some romantic uh, jealousy too. Why not? It's thrilling. So do you have any main takeaways from that sort of starting point here? That these two came to play. And, you know, in the early going, we were really looking at Harwin Strong. We were looking at Otto Hightower. We, we were looking at Viserys. In terms of the political machinations, now it's been ratcheted up a level with these two in their most powerful positions, we've seen them. And I think this is going to be the main little finger varies type of dynamic and less so the happy fool that Viserys is trying to politic and maneuver. So who, from your point of view, is technically the more, or or, are they not one and the same? Who's the more powerful one, but who has the better claim to the throne in your point of view right now? I think it was pretty laid bare in that opening scene. The fact that, Allison can request that her and the baby come up immediately and Rhaenyra knows it's going to cause a lot more trouble if I ignore this than if I just suck it up and go. Clearly, Allison has more power now. As of right now, though, clearly um, due to Viserys' decision, and I think uh, at the end of episode one, she is the heir to the throne, Rhaenyra. That doesn't mean Westeros is fully behind her. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be hiccups and complications. But if we're looking at the letter of the law and the very literal interpretation of Westerosi uh, succession, yeah, it's Rhaenyra. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm on the same page. All right. The next big plot beat that I think is we meet all of the Hightower Targaryen kids, and they're all sorts of fucked up. I saw uh, <laughs> Olivia Cook, and this is why I love this chick, because not only can she act and is gorgeous, but she's hilarious. And she said that they're kind of like the Trump kids. And that is pretty much the best explanation just sort of like a nepotism breeded almost like concerningly like 
incestual looking <laughs> type trio yeah. of weird dickish blonde kids. And I, I'm confused as to what is the purpose of their aggressive suckiness. Is it just to make the succession more complicated, like to make them even further unrootable for what is the point of all three of these kids being shitheads? I think it's one, you know, the being raised in the cocoon of elite power and wealth corrupts you right from the jump. You know, I, I think that's why uh, a Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, which is a tale of novellas of Sir Duncan the Tall and Sir and Egg, his squire, which is most likely going to be the next live action adaptation from HBO. And Egg becomes Aegon the Unlikely. And essentially, he is, uh, long story short, he is a one of like the little princelings who's actually not in line for the throne. And because of that, uh, his father lets him be the squire to Sir Duncan the Tall, who's a simple but honorable man. And Aegon grows up to like just adore the common folk. And like a lot of people don't like him when he's king, a lot of the royalty and elites, because he's so committed to making sure the common folk have better lives, you know, better access to like, necessary resources and so i think this is like a nice juxtaposition for like deep deep fans and just a a clear play on like hey these kids are assholes because they're they're the royals and two i think it's also to heighten what we what looks like to be the inevitable conflict between these two families you know they're raised together just like kind of theon and rob stark and yet betrayal and mixed feelings and and senses of identity and and rightful claims that's all going to complicate their relationships because right now they're all terrible and dickish but it is sort of like normal kid talking craps to one another. They do kind of seem familial, despite well, the rivalry. I mean, they had the one girl playing with a bug. That is like weird kid 101. Yeah, that no, that was that was odd. I don't know what her deal is. More so the the sons and kind of like giving each other. Oh, and then the one yeah. kid was jerking off out the window. That's also weird 101. These kids are fucking weird. It's yeah, aggressive. Weird. Yeah, it, it, and I and and just as your point about juxtaposing. They also make the uh, Targaryen secretly strong kids like clearly impish and weak. So I'm just, I'm wondering what kind of foundations they're trying to lay with that. They're also younger than, uh, I think it's Aegon. Who's the the oldest blonde kid? I can't even remember. You're the names guy, not me. I can't can't even keep this in Lord of the Rings. I'm really struggling with the names. Uh, I'm starting to get there. Like I know who Lainor is and shit. All right, so next big plot beat, and I texted you on Sunday night saying, fuck Laris, and you didn't text oh, back because oh, I, yeah. think I think you were in uh, Chicago with uh, the family. So then I texted you the, the next day and said, you know what, fuck you too, because you kept saying, oh, don't sleep on the strong family. Go ahead. I just, I genuinely, like I said to you, I, because I remember I read Fire and Blood, like right when it came out, I'm like smoking a lot of weed then. And <laughs> I, I don't remember that happening. I can't, so someone who's listening, who who is better idea, does that happen in the books? Because I genuinely don't remember. So uh, yeah, that was, that was so, surprising to me. So the next plot beat is Sir Kristen Cole, who has harbored a 10-year grudge against Rhaenyra because she broke his heart. Like, and all right, at first I kind of felt before he broke that guy's face in, like I was like, all right, dude, like I kind of feel for you. Like to have your heart broke sucks. You know what I mean? Nobody wants that. But bro, to carry it on for 10 years, psycho shit. So I'm going to talk about that later when we get to our song of risers and fallers. Okay. That's cool. that's definitely a, a main plot point I want to uh, talk about. Um, So he still mad at her, basically knows that Harwin Strong has fathered bastard kids with her. So he tricks Harwin. These brutes, man. They're big, but they aren't too, they aren't too bright. Come big on. They fall hard. Yeah. Goddamn. So he tricks 
Harwin into uh, becoming emotional about the boy and showing his true feelings, therefore more or less letting the secret out. As a result, which we'll talk about later, he gets burnt alive by Laris. Kristen Cole, again, like, you know, I, I don't like this guy at all, but well played. This is a classic Thronesian move. He knew what he was doing every single step of the way, and it worked. Now, I don't know if he knew that Laris would do what he did. I don't really know what his plan was other than to make Rhaenyra's life worse, but he succeeded in in that case. Yeah, I got to say, well played, Kristen Cole. Also going to talk about Laris in my, in my risers and fallers as well. It's very, very interesting dynamic, a very interesting turn of events. I, I'm still waiting to, and this is more of like a broad thought. Okay, they've, they've teased us with a few deaths. These two were definitely unexpected, but is there going to be a Ned Stark-esque death before the end of season one? Like something we're like, whoa, really didn't see that coming. Do you know, though? Not because remember, they're doing different timelines. They're doing different things. But when we first spoke, a few weeks ago, I was like, I asked you this. I was like, are they going to have a Ned Stark thing? And you and you more or less said, dude, this is Thrones, of course. So I thought Harwin Strong might have been that. I, again, I don't remember from the book if, if that happens even then. But like, you know, there are some deaths I think that are more easy to predict, particularly for some characters that are, that are still alive. But I'm wondering if there's something that's going to reshake the entire balance of power, not to borrow the rocks line for Black Adam before we head into season two of House of the Dragon. Do you think he's going to say that in the film? Like, guess God. what, DCU? <laughs> I, I would love that. I'd be like, listen, the DCU balance of power just got shifted. And every character is like, what are you what? talking about? <laughs> All right. Um, okay, babe, this is where I'm going to kind of lean on you. The Triarchy's back. Uh, and they remain a threat. And they've joined forces with Dorne. Now, before I let you rip, Game of Thrones didn't really have a massive battle episode until season two's Blackwater. And I'm starting to get the feeling that's the role the Triarchy are going to play here. They're bringing them up too much and constantly referencing their growing power for them to remain a background threat forever. What what do we need to know about them at this point, if you even know something about yeah, them? Yeah, it's like, I don't know much about the Triarchy. I'm much more interested in their alliance with Dorne because uh, what I think Game of Thrones fans have to remember by the time Game of Thrones starts, Dorne is part of the Seven Kingdoms, but they were never conquered. They were only brought into Westeros proper through a marriage alliances strategically because Aegon the Conqueror and everyone who came after them failed to conquer Dorne because they are guerrilla tacticians. They they would attack in kind of roving uh, guerrilla parties, then just, just uh, uh, kind of fade back into the, the cover of the mountains where they couldn't be found. They are hard, clever people, as we saw with Oberyn. And sadly, of course, the Dorne plotline in Game of Thrones really left a lot to be desired. But in the source material, they are badasses. And again, they never get conquered. They only get brought into Westeros through marriages. So I would love to see that Targaryen v. Dorne uh, attention. And that's definitely the bigger threat than the Triarchy. Of course, Essos and the free cities are always going to be kind of a thorn in the side because, you know, there, there's trade routes, there, there's specific economic uh, factors to consider between the Iron Throne and the continent to the east. But Dorne is really kind of what, what I'm hoping to see, a, a redemption arc almost for the failure on Game of Thrones. This is not a one-to-one, -one, but do you think the Triarchy is going to serve as sort of like the Stannis or even Night King plot point where it's like, Yes, there are all these political t 
tete-a-tete, but the overarching threat is X? No, I would bet not. I would bet it's only there to inflame internal tension within like the small council and different factions. Like we saw arguing about how to best to deal with them. Because ultimately at the end of the day, this is a show about the Targaryen civil war and the Targaryen struggles and the inter-Westeros power jockeying. And I think everything else is a catalyst to feed that continued fracture of this one kingdom. Okay. Cool. See, this is why I fucking need you. That book knowledge <laughs> hits different. Uh, all right. We now check in with Damon for the first time. He's got a family now. He's seemingly domesticated, docile. Where are they exactly? They're on the road somewhere. I, th- I think they're in Volantis. Like, I, I gotta rewatch the episode, but well, I think... Because I know they're asked to aid Pentos, but that's sort of like the, like the continent, right? Now, Essos is the continent. Pentos is one of like, you know, like Pentos, Volantis. A lot of these cities are like the New York, Chicago, Miami, like okay. just really big epicenters of that that continent. So we see Damon seeming to just like enjoy at-home dad life. Uh, there's a lot of sort of dragon dialogue that I just kind of tune out. I like to watch the dragons when they when they talk about how like birthing them works and how they like follow a kid. For, I just get bored. So um, and then his wife kills himself kills herself via self Chakaris because of painful labor. Um, is that correct? Yeah. I, listen, I understand that the maester said, like, I've reached the end of, of my ability. Like, I don't know what else to do. She jumped into suicide real quick. Like, you guys didn't want to check with a different doctor. You didn't want to see if there was, like, any other methods. I mean, you have a family, lady. Like, you, you I don't know. Like she just jumped into self barbecue so quick. Well, that's why I put it in like question mark. Cause I was like, is it just because of the painful labors or something? I'm cause they seemed happy together. So I feel like. It seemed weird. You know, it, it obviously, I think the implication was that the doctor didn't know what to do. And like both her and the, the, the baby were probably going to die. And she wanted to go out like a dragon kind of like, like right. she, she or just, uh, and, and the pain and as well. Yeah. It just, it just seemed like a very rushed decision. I mean, again, you have a family, like you have a good life. It's just, I don't know. I would have fought for it a little bit more. I was confused by that. There's no book knowledge. I think that I can kind okay. of relay that puts that into proper context. That said, despite how confused I was, I thought it was a crushing scene really heartbreaking scene that was her dragon and you could sense the dragons uh is pain too strong of a word i mean you know they're supposed to be smart yeah. right aren't they known as smart they're very creatures? smart and, and they're emotionally connected to their riders the, the yeah, dragons so, really didn't want to do it yeah so i you know i kind of liked that despite i was like i, I mean yeah aggressive right turn there to just and just shout uh, out to the uh, visual effects team because you know uh, obviously that's become a, a greater storyline recently and while i think it's slightly overblown some of the criticisms that Mm. film Twitter has focused on. Let's give credit to something that I I think has been very unproblematic, you know, and if whatever you want to say about house of the dragon and not not a single time have I been like, that's embarrassingly bad visual effects. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, especially when we've seen some of like the, I mean, again, I, I'm not that guy, but there has been an, I mean, that one shot from Thor love and, and thunder of that kid's, floating head did you see that one yeah and that it's was just like there has been a undeniable decrease in quality as the in whether it be backlog from covid or just an increase in franchise production across the board from disney and warners etc cetera, etc cetera. the product is clearly hurt or not the product the technology is clearly not being used to the peak of its powers 
the dragons and thrones so far have looked fucking great. Every time they're flying, and I'm watching with my girlfriend, every single time, particularly when there's two in one shot, I just lean down and go, the dragons are so fucking cool. Every <laughs> time. She's like, you're such a boy. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, dude. You see them flapping? Like, could you imagine being it's on the so back cool. of that fucking thing? Yeah. Holy shit. All right. Laris, that fucking scumbag, forms a <laughs> network of tongueless spies, cooks his father and brother alive to uh, blackmail is too strong of a term, but have a one-up on Allison, who is justifiably horrified. Now, I blame her for letting him this close into her inner circle and not realizing what a snake he was. But this was especially painful for me because literally last week I declared Harwin Strong is my guy. Like this motherfucking breakbones. Yeah, motherfucking breakbones is my number one favorite character. This week starts, they position him as fucking the princess now. So I'm like, oh, he's a main player. Like he's in this shit now. Wearing some of the sickest uniform I've ever seen in the Game of Thrones world, and he gets cooked alive. So that one hurt for me. <laughs> I'm not gonna that, lie. That was brutal. So again, as I said, I I just don't remember if this happens in the books or not. What I do remember from the books, which again, Fire and Blood is a textbook that is from unreliable narrators. So you're never really supposed to know, like, okay. Did this happen like the historical record or is that a sanitized, you know, altered version, which I think is very interesting in and of itself. And and I'm wondering how House of the Dragon is going to continue to play with that. But number two, from that, what I do remember is that everyone always says, even 100 years later, no one knew what Laris's motivations were. No one knew why he did the things that he did, just that he was, you know, intelligent and clever and, and uh, you know, a, a force to be reckoned with. So I find that very interesting there, that we have really no idea what's going on in his head. Well, not quite, but we do know what, what he wants. He wants, well, we know what he wants in the micro and not macro what he wants right now is Alicent to put in a to send out a call to her father assumedly to reinstall him as hand of the king and laris basically wants an iou for getting him that job back what he plans to do with that how he sees the political wheels turning and why he wants to be on this side I don't know. What are but, his motivations? What are his goals? You know, is, is he Littlefinger? Is he Varys? Like, what, we don't know which way he's going. I mean, right now it's pretty bad. Yeah. I'll talk I'd, about this I'm, more in Risers and Fallers. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And then finally, the, the final plot beat is Rhaenyra refuses to let Laenor go to battle against the Triarchy following Harwin's fuck up. Uh, she tries to smooth the bridge between her and Alicent by marrying her son, who is supposed to take the throne when Varys dies, to Alicent's daughter. Alicent is not having it at all, drops another of her fantastic lines in the show, how sweetly the fox speaks when it is being cornered by the hounds. So, and even though uh, Viserys is pleading with her to sort of take this deal and to smooth things over, she ain't having it. As a result, Rhaenyra goes back home to Dragonstone with her immediate family. Babe. Yeah, man, I, I just Talk wish I was uh, half as clever as these characters. You know, like Allison is in a serious verbal sparring match and just is throwing out absolutely killer one-liners. And like when I'm in an argument with my friend, I'm like, oh yeah, well, like you're a fucking idiot, dude. <laughs> yeah. Like I wish she, I was half as articulate and eloquent. She's got that slick tongue for sure. Exactly. But, you know, it's interesting that uh, that Rhaenyra and her squad are going back to Dragonstone. You know, it, it, it's like in one hand, is that a retreat? Is that a, a kind of Absolutely. concession, a sign of weakness? Yeah, but on the other, 
you know, when a dragon goes to their, their most comfortable place and, and, al- and you allow them to gather strength, I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end once they decide that it's time to return. But Rhaenyra, she strikes me as somewhat hapless. Like, she doesn't seem capable of... Yeah, that we've discussed. No, nobody really is capable, but Rhaenyra has, no, has not uh, 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 delivered any sort of argument as to why she would be a good ruler. Like, or, or what, what I was saying, like, she doesn't seem to have the ability for foresight or scheming because, like, all right, having one kid with Harwin is one thing. Like, to have multiple is just, like, egregious, right? Like, she's just reckless at that point. And, of course, it came home to roost at some point. So, especially after a period of 10 years, like, they showed her saving her at that fight, and now they're fucking and have three kids or two kids. So, it's just like, you know, I just don't think she has much tact. So, I absolutely read this as a retreat and not, like, all right, now we're going to scheme up our plan and pounce. I just don't see it following. Still, I, while I don't think she's very capable and hasn't shown anything, I, I don't count out the power of the dragon. And I mean that in this kind of... But there's multiple dragons. She's no, not I know, only... but, but not the literal dragon sense. Just like when Targaryens go to Dragonstone, it's like when mobsters hit the mattresses. Like shit is getting revved up. It's like, it's always been a historical thing. And like, you know, she's going to come back with some sort of a plan. Well, will it be a good one? I have no idea. Will she have necess- like the necessary quality allies in her pocket? I got no idea. But again, I don't want to be on the receiving end of a dragon's wrath. Yeah, true. Okay, any final points before we move on to our final category? I am thinking, and I haven't seen it yet, so I'm, I'm truly just speculating, but I am thinking since episode nine was always bangers for Game of Thrones, I have a feeling next week, they're going to change it up and they're going to throw like a haymaker at us. I just have Episode this. Seven. Gut, yeah. I just have this gut feeling that like, okay, now that we've laid the groundwork of the time jump and the new characters and the new situation, we're going to hit them hard. I just, well, what do you think that that could be? I and, don't know. I okay. don't, it's just a truly a gut feeling. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Now, finally, our final category, a song of rising and falling the top three categories you are rooting for right now. Brandon, number three. So I am rooting for anyone who is angling to take Laris off the board because (laughs) obviously this dude is cold-blooded. Now, what I think is interesting too, in Westeros, kinslaying, you know, killing your own family, even when it's deserved, is considered one of the worst sins you could possibly commit. Your house is the whole fucking point of the show. <laughs> exactly. But even when it's when it makes sense. So Brynden Rivers, a.k.a. Blood Raven, a.k.a. who became the three-eyed raven who taught Bran, was a, uh, a, Tar- a Targaryen bastard who became Hand of the King. He, you know, delved into like dark magic and he was, he was a great archer. And long story short, his half-brother in one of the Blackfire rebellions was trying to, you know, take over and destroy everything. And so Brynden invited him for peace negotiations, but lied and betrayed and basically killed him in a hail of arrows. Now, that was strategically the right move to put down a rebellion. But because it was his half-brother, even though it saved King's Landing, you know, from future uh, uh, war and destruction, he had this horrible reputation for the rest of his you know, natural life, because then he obviously transitioned to an unnatural life. And and it's just so funny to me that you can make the right call and still be kind of branded a kinslayer. So for Laris to do this, obviously it's on the low. Nobody knows except probably Allison. It's just a very interesting gamble. And I mean, interested to see how it plays out, but obviously I am very much on the, 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 uh, 
the side of whoever is going to bring a sledgehammer down on that guy's other leg. Uh, needless to say, I agree. My, num- my number three right now is Allison Hightower. Now that I sort of got a uh, clarification on why she holds such a grudge towards Rhaenyra combined with how much I loved the performance and just her, like she seems to actually be the only intelligent one so far, like the one that's capable of, of balancing tact and not friendliness, but she's not outright, outright ruthless either. So, so far I'm just liking her balance of how she is trying to secure her and her family's power without going too far. Uh, B, you're number two. So I am rooting for anyone who will take up Harwin's anti-Kristen Cole mantle in time. (laughs) Because like, (laughs) as you said, my dude, it's been 10 years and you are still holding this grudge. You gotta get over it, my guy. And I think what's interesting about it is he defined himself by his honor and his valor, and it took amazing pride in being elevated to the King's Guard when we first meet him. And that was the pinnacle for his family to that point. So it really, truly meant a lot. It was his defining characteristic. He then was knocked to an all-time low because he felt as if he soiled and betrayed his honor due to his relationship with Rhaenyra. But now that that you know, hatred and resentment and that grudge has really simmered for a decade, it's actually adversely affecting his ability to serve as a fair, loyal, faithful, unbiased king guard, Kingsguard. So the very thing he was trying to avoid and was upset about in the first place has actually been the catalyst for this self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, because he's sullying his honor in his quest for revenge and neglecting his duty. So it's this very cool full circle thematic thing that also makes him out to be a little bitch boy. I was going to say, that's a long way of saying he's a simp. Yeah, big time <laughs> simp. Simping hard. Uh, my number two is Otto Hightower. But as I'm saying this, I have a bad feeling that like the big death this year might be him. Um, but again, we haven't seen our boy in a few weeks. Or Was that last week? I'm not sure. We definitely didn't see him this week. I am looking forward to him returning since he was my number one before I put Harwin strong there by default, he stays at two because he hasn't really done much to lose that place. B your number one person that you are rooting for. I am rooting for Damon and Lena's children because Mm. listen, I, even though you are right to point out that Damon looked docile, he was literally talking about for lack of a better term, getting out of the game, which is actually the mature kind of peaceful thing to do. But we know, all things considered, he's a psychotic asshole. His mom, their mom just turned herself into barbecue. Like, it's not looking good for these kids in their future. And just for the sake of, like, protecting the innocent, like, oh, man, they're going to have a rough road ahead. I mean, is the timeline long enough where children are going to be players in the show? Or I I don't know. It depends entirely on, like, what the show decides. Because there's a fucking lot of them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of them. But remember, the show is kind of going a little bit on its own timeline, too. Yeah. All right, my number one to echo your number three, and I swear we did not plan this at all. My number one person that I am rooting for right now is whoever the fuck kills Larry Strong. For all the reasons that B had, fuck that guy. I mean, really, both your dad and your brother? brother Burnt alive, dude. And I'm really glad, like, they... You know, Thrones has been known to be gruesome as hell at times, but they showed you just enough without showing you too much because that was a fucking brutal death. It's the worst way to go. Him saying, I will burn, that's just like, oh man, that's a terrifying way to go out. And his father like banging on the door trying to save him. I mean, that that was horrible. And 
Jesus, Laris. And then, like, it also seemed that they were super friendly at the uh, at the wedding. Yeah. And I'm sure growing up, Harwin looked out for his crippled brother all the time. So it's the vibe I got from their their brief interactions on the show. I, I can't remember if they ever addressed them in the books, but oof. Fucked up. I know. All right. But it, it but it does give you that inherent villain as well. Like now I have somebody that I am definitely rooting against. Well, I'm still <laughs> not sure who I'm rooting for. I definitely know who I'm rooting against. That's this exactly. All right, B. Thank you as always for joining me. Follow Brandon at great underscore Catsby. He's doing great work over at Parrot Analytics. Boom. Nailed it. All right. And now on for my interviews with Michael Giacchino, Lauren Laura Donnelly and Brian Gay, the creative team behind Werewolf by Night. Folks, today I am joined by Michael Giacchino, the director of Werewolf by Night, one of Hollywood's premier composers, and perhaps most importantly, a fellow New Jersey yes. Italian. Uh, <laughs> Michael, look, man, Seriously, how did you convince Marvel to let you make this? It is arguably a, not only for a genre, but a brand that one of the general knocks on it is that it's a very monolithic franchise. Yeah. Werewolf by Night is easily the most idiosyncratic entry in the MCU so far. So congrats on that. And really, I just want to hear what your pitch was. It was funny. I was, you know, this is maybe four years ago. I was uh, walking across the lot with Kevin Feige and we were talking about, uh, you know, he was like, well, if, if, you know, if you're, if you were going to direct, what would you want to do? And I, and I was instantly, I was like, well, werewolf by night. There's just like, and he was like, wait, wow. really? And I was like, <laughs> yes. And he goes, well, why that? And I was like, because it's the most unexplored area of the Marvel universe. And it's about characters that have real empathy and real problems and real struggles with humanity. And I, that really interests me. You know, as a kid, I grew up watching monster movies. I loved them so much. And I never understood why all the other characters in those films wanted to kill the monsters. I was like, no, don't kill these things. These are people with problems. You need to help them. You know, like that's to me was the entire thing about a monster film. This idea that these are people with problems and struggles that they they don't know how to deal with and they need help, you know, but no one would ever help them. I mean, to watch a film like King, even King Kong, you know, like yeah. I always felt awful about what happened to King Kong. I felt awful, you know, where, where I had other friends who were like, yeah, kill him, knock him off the building. You know, he's going to destroy everything. I was like, yeah, he's destroying everything because you guys are not treating him right. You know, you're not doing what's best in his best interest. So the idea to have a chance to explore that in within the Marvel universe was very interesting to me. And I that's that's really what drove the whole thing. You know, and I gotta be frank, man, when I saw that first trailer, I thought there's no way that the actual project is gonna maintain this tenor and tone and look, but you guys really went for it and it's yeah. awesome for that. Um, what are if you wanted to give fans a primer of horror films to check out to get themselves in the mood for this, what are, I don't know, two or three of them? I would say watch uh, The Wolfman, watch uh, Werewolf of London, watch uh, King Kong, watch The Creature from the Black Lagoon, watch Poltergeist. You could do that too. I mean, that's another perfect example of a movie that to me explores horror, but doesn't forget the heart, the character or the humor of it either. The humanity, you know, it's all there. And those are my favorite kind of things. I would also say just watch The Twilight Zone. To mm. me, 
again, that was a cornerstone for what I wanted to do in terms of telling a shorter story, you know, that had bigger implications and that talked about things that were bigger than itself. Uh, Twilight Zone to me, Rod Serling is a, a, a god. And I, I just, you know, every day thank, thank that he existed because what he put out into the world to me was some of the best stuff ever. Michael, I, I want you to look in, inward quick. I get a huge thrill out of speaking to people who are undeniably great at their jobs. And you, as a composer, sir, are one of the best. If you had to pick, what piece of music of yours do you think is the most culturally impactful that you've made so far? And why is it up? Oh, well... <laughs> Oh, why is it up? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what, no, what, no, everyone always, uh, yeah, everyone goes up. I love up and I have such a special place in my heart for it. But if I were to talk about the music that felt most like me that I put out in the world, I would have to go back to work, the, the work I did on Lost. Oh. I always feel like Lost, Lost is like just pure emotion. You know, Lost was always just this pure gut punch. And I... They, they, they allowed me to write music that I wanted to write. There was never any guidelines as to it needs to sound like this or it needs to be like that. It was just like, just do what you feel. Mm. So to me, Lost is a representation of the most honest, sort of truthful music I have ever written. I love that answer. Sir, I've got to wrap here. Let me just say Lost was the first show I ever watched live. And even maybe once a year, I'll still go back online and watch that scene between Locke and Jack where he oh. tells you didn't lose, they didn't lose your father. They just can't find his body. That scene yes. and your music, I'm sure, sticks uh -uh. with me forever, man. So thank you so much for your work. I can't Absolutely. wait for everyone to see Werewolf by Night. Can't wait to see what you've got cooking for Batman 2 and all the stuff that, <laughs> that you've got in the works, boss. Great. Thank, thank you, you so much. Great to talk to you. Hello, Appreciate Luke. it, Michael. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Folks, today I am joined by Laura Donnelly, proud new owner of perhaps the coolest name in the MCU. I swear. <laughs> as she, as I she plays Elsa Bloodstone in Werewolf by Night. Thank you so much for your time today, Laura. My pleasure. Uh, I am extremely curious about how this project came to you. I imagine getting a call from Marvel is a real career. Is unlike any MCU project I've ever seen. What was your reaction when you read the script and when you got the part? Well, it was, it was that it was seriously Marvel are calling me <laughs> it was like, what on earth. Um, and then, and I, you know, I've been a big MCU fan right from the beginning. Um, but to find out that it was going to be something completely new and, and really unique in this universe just made it so exciting because, you know, who gets to do that? Who gets to just bring something brand new to an audience who has seen so much of this universe and, you know, I just thought it was far too good an opportunity to miss. So I probably would have done it, you know, even if there had been no script. <laughs> but then I read that. And um, what I really loved about it, apart aside from the fact that it was horror and Halloween special, which are particularly, you know, I'm a particularly big fan of, um, to, to, to realize that we were also telling a story that was going to have real character and heart and was aiming to you know tell a really human story as well as a monster story was so appealing well so you you bring up a great point what was the most difficult and or enjoyable part of essentially being the audience's avatar in this because you're basically the only human in a room full of monsters both <laughs> literal and metaphorical monsters yeah 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 um what was the challenge i mean i think 
the challenge for me in acting is 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 always anything that you have to use almost entirely your imagination and not given circumstances that are there in front of you you know i come from a theater background so i'm used to uh being there uh with you know real actors and and on sets that i can that i can um you know handle and 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 everything feels so real and and i imagined whenever i had heard about this project that it was going to be quite a lot of green screen and cgi and stuff which in fact it wasn't which was mm-hmm. thrilling um so much of what we had was completely practical but there is of course just that even know, the monster sorry even the monster yes even the monster um all of the <laughs> monsters um yeah everything was you know had uh, a huge element of practicality to it. Uh, so I, you know, I, I think that when, but when you are dealing in that genre, you know, when you're dealing with a literal monster and you know something is a costume or you know that something is uh, going to be added to with CGI later on or anything like that, you know, obviously you've got to, um, you, you've got to tap into something that is unknown to you. Uh, you know, there's the, the moment where I'm watching the transformation. So I'm, you know, I'm watching and trying to react to that and, and there, there's nothing to react to. And, you know, I've got to work that up. But it's, you know, it's the fun and it's the challenge of this stuff that you have to kind of dig into how you can connect with that on a personal level as well. Plus the fact that you got to do sort of an old school horror scream in the middle of a Marvel project is so cool. That is so cool. <laughs> Tell so me about it. <laughs> let, let me ask you here, because I've got to wrap soon. You said that you are a horror fan. If you had to suggest some films to, for fans to check out to put them in the mood for this, what films would you name? I, my personal favorites, I would say the original Frankenstein with Boris Karloff. I would say uh, Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Um, I, any of the old werewolf movies. I mean, um, you know, uh, uh, which the name is completely American Werewolf in London, which, um, you know, was, was the kind of probably the first werewolf film I think I ever saw. You know, all of those are just going to add to your experience because you'll know what it is that we're paying tribute to. All right, Laura, I've got to wrap here. Thank you so much for your time. I hope your character pops up again or perhaps playing her once was the appeal of it. Either way, you've got the coolest name in the MCU going forward. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Laura. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. Folks, today I am joined by Brian Gay and about 10,000 more more folks here. Didn't expect that. Uh, Folks, today I am joined by Brian Gay, a director of production and development at Marvel Studios, who has most recently worked on Werewolf by Night and Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum mania brian thank you for joining me today sir of course thanks for having me so i want to i am thoroughly impressed with how idiosyncratic werewolf by night was i think it might be the most unique project in mcu so far which considering how long it's been around is a really testament to the work that you've put out what were the conversations like at marvel that led to this project coming to be was it a desire to try something new was it a desire to play in horror i mean it yes yes and even more yes um to be specific it was something that we knew we wanted to create what we're calling special presentations and they're a little bit different than a movie they're a little bit different than a tv show there's sort of a short uh uh what i will call an appetizer of introducing a new character putting it in a new situation and seeing what happens. And so Werewolf by Night's our first one. And we got this idea because 
Michael Cicchino came to us and he's a longtime collaborator with Marvel Studios uh, on the composing side. He said he wanted to direct and he had the idea of what about Werewolf by Night? Like we love Werewolf by Night, great, all ears, let's get in a room, let's talk about it, let's figure it out. And one of the ideas that quickly popped up was these 1930s and 1940s classic monster movies, right? Things that we grew up loving, uh, things that we watched. We said, well, Werewolf by Night could fit right in on that. You know, what, what it would take to, to, as an example, shoot this in, uh, and portray it in black and white? What would we do with more of a shadow look to it? What would we do if it was a collection of monsters and things? And all these discussions led to uh, what feels like a very unique, special presentation uh, in a way that you haven't seen the MCU before. Absolutely. And now, so you kind of touched on this uh, more aggressively genre-focused projects like this is something that we could expect you guys to do more of? You know, who's to say, first of all, I'm, uh, I know the secrets of Marvel, but... Um, well, I, I won't ask who. Don't worry. Of course. Um, No, but I think what's exciting about this one in particular is the story called for it, right? Like we have this werewolf by night character who lives in the world of monsters is, you know, something that exists in kind of that dark and scary and supernatural area. And so it made sense for this project that we should lean heavily into that and look for ways to let, you know, not just the story tell us, but the visual aspects of creating something on film. Brian, I, I've got to be frank. When I first saw saw the trailer, I thought there's no way that the actual project is going to keep this tone. I was like, there's no way. But you guys really did it. And I, I thought it was fantastic. I want to swing over to what you've got coming up next. Ant-Man sure. 3. I try to be delicate with these things because I know how tight of a spot that you, you guys are in. So let, I just want to keep it broad. What's the first word that comes to mind when I bring up Jonathan Majors Kang? Uh, Jonathan, first word is talented. That guy is an incredible actor um, and really brought something to the character that when we were shooting um, feels electric and he feels outstanding. And one of the my favorite things about this movie is just the concept that the first two Ant-Man movies were relatively you know, small, grounded, uh, we use small as a pun, but like literally they were about the family and they were doing that. And this time we're taking that family, we're taking Ant-Man, we're taking the Wasp, taking everyone and throwing them up against Kang. And as you, I'm sure you know from the comics, that's one of the biggest villains in, in the whole run of, of decades long of comic material. And that seems fun and exciting and the reason that we wanted to make this movie. You know, it's it's a big challenge for Ant-Man and Wasp. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time. I've got to wrap here. And when I say from all fans, continue to live the dream, sir. All right. Thank you very much. Nice to chat with you. All right, thanks to Brandon for joining me for our conversation about House of the Dragon. Make sure to follow all the great work he's doing over at Parrot. Thanks, of course, to my boy Cade for joining me. Follow him at Cade underscore Onder and all the work he's doing at Comic Book. Follow me at Eric Italiano and the podcast account at Postcard Pod. Thank you to the Werewolf by Night team. It debuted to a 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes. Does that mean it is the best MCU thing of all time? No, what that means is 100% of critics liked what they saw. I am one of them. I thought that, I think I said it on the show, when I saw the trailer, I was like, there's no way that they're going to carry that vibe through to the show. But they did. That is what the movie is. It's a 1930s, 1940s monster movie. I 
can't believe they pulled it off. So congrats and thanks to the team for chatting with me a bit. Um, Cade, final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Rotten Tomato and how it works, and it pisses me off. But that's all. That's, the story <laughs> that's a different day. podcast. <laughs> that's a different podcast. All right, y'all. We will talk to you next week. Peace. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.